Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Just going to peel back the curtain for you here on this episode of the OHL podcast. We always record about 12 hours before the podcast gets published. In the case of today's episode, it's maybe six hours before the podcast gets published because we wanted to await the results of Monday's game. We always record on Monday before the release on Tuesday. And here we are literally in the minutes after Barry advances over Hamilton in six games and Saginaw advances over Flint in seven. And that finishes off quite the first round of the OHL playoffs, Mr. Dan Mahar. And I have to tip my cap to you, Mr. Farwell, because if I'm not mistaken, you went eight for eight on the correct winners of these series. Uh, you know, my favorite part, if I'm being perfectly honest, and this is not even a humble brag because there's nothing humble about it. I said that, I thought the biggest shock of anything would be is if Saginaw and Flint do not go seven games. And when Saginaw was up three to one, I thought, well, there goes that bold statement. But you make a lot of bold statements when you're doing predictions. We joked about it before. We will, by the way, get to later in this episode, uh, because now that we have all the teams lined up for round two, we'll take a look at who we think is going, what's going to happen in, in round two. But before all of that, uh, maybe a recap of, of round one, Dan. And I don't know that there's a, a bigger story in round number one than the historic sweep by the Kitchener Rangers of the Windsor Spitfires. Never in Ontario Hockey League history has a bottom seed swept a top seed in the first round of the playoffs. It's only the fifth time ever that a bottom seed has beaten a top seed, but the first time ever by way of a sweep. And I don't think anybody anywhere predicted that forget the sweep even that the rangers were really even going to win the series i i took them in seven but this is a shock around the hockey league as far as i'm concerned you know mike it's one of those things but honestly it is and it isn't and and the reason i say that is is historically in junior hockey you have a pretty big gulf between first and eighth there's seldom much shot for the eighth place team just because it's usually them in a cycle year where there are a lot of young kids a lot of the vets moved out and to rebuild here and the top teams have loaded up. So that's usually what you're dealing with. This was a big anomaly. And I think everyone saw it where the Kitchener Rangers were a veteran team. They were older. They were loaded up for bear this year. The big unique piece of this year was just how poorly they performed for much of the year, uh, way underperformed. And then poor Windsor Spitfires had a heck of a year probably felt they earned something a little bit better than the Kitchener Rangers in round one. And it's scary when you have a team like Kitchener figure it out at this time of year. And they figured it out. That was by far the best hockey we saw them play all year. That's a perfect way to put it because there's no real other way to explain this, right? You talk about the underachieving through the season, which was noticed by everybody, but the way the Kitchener Rangers played those four games, I mean, my goodness, they had not, beaten Windsor throughout the entire regular season. Windsor had never scored fewer than five goals in any of their four regular season wins versus Kitchener in a game, 26 total over the course of the four games. They scored seven in the four games in the playoffs. Windsor had one power play goal in the four games in the playoffs on 16 tries. The Rangers had four shorthanded goals. And and one of the other stats that just blew my mind at the end of this series was that the Windsor Spitfires led in the four games for a grand total of five minutes and 26 seconds. Other than that, and I think that's the most telling stat, frankly, it was, and I'm not trying to be cruel to or diminish the Windsor Spitfires, but it was all Kitchener in that series, basically from the opening faceoff of game one. It was the Mike. They and I'm sure the Kitchener fans watched that series and say, "Where on earth was this all year?" Because it was a different team. The back checking was ferocious. The the gap control was was terrific. But and let's face it, 
Francesco Pinelli was a was a beast in games one and two for Kitchener, and he didn't play games three and four. Uh, well, he played one shift in game three before being ejected. So they did this without their best player. And you look at how they did it, and there's just so many players you have to really give a nod to. I mean, Mitchell Martin and Danny Jokin were just absolutely phenomenal for Kitchener through that series. And I hear a lot on the Windsor side, Mike, where there's a lot of uh, – a lot of down faces saying, you know, they really choked and they 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 didn't come through when it counted. But poor Shane Wright, they gave up a lot to get him. You know, I, I I'm sure they were expecting more in the playoffs. But how about a how about a nod to his former Don Mills Flyer team at their Roman Schmidt? Probably the best hockey I've ever seen him play. All over his his ex teammate that whole series. I think I saw. To talk about how dangerous Windsor was, I think I saw Roman Schmidt more than three feet off his man once in that series, and Alex Christopoulos ripped it top corner. That's how dangerous that Windsor Spitfires team was. You just couldn't give them any space, and there was four straight games for 60 minutes where Kitchener didn't give them a bit of space. But I think guys like Roman Schmidt, who had an underwhelming season, just showed up at the absolute top of his game in the playoffs, and you really have to give, hand it to him. That was as good a defensive performance as you'll see. You talk about Danny Shulkin and Mitch Martin up front. I'll uh, add to that a player that I'll talk about more during prospects of the week at the end of this episode. And I'll throw in a Francesco R. Curry, a guy that was acquired by the Rangers when he was tied for the Ontario Hockey League lead in goal scoring. So he was there to do just that. And I was so impressed with his play inside his own blue line, his willingness to back check, his willingness to do all of the things that you want to see players do. And I think you could say that to a man through the Rangers lineup, they bought into whatever was necessary to win a playoff series against an opponent that absolutely had more offensive firepower. The Rangers have some enough one might say, but up against the likes of the Windsor Spitfires, they couldn't match them piece for piece in terms of firepower. I thought that Windsor might be vulnerable once you got past that offense the defense was not only I think lesser on paper than the Kitchener Rangers but banged up which didn't help at all and then to goaltending and there's another interesting stat Marco Costantini who picks up all four wins in goal for the Kitchener Rangers has lost just three playoff games in his junior career and all of them were to the Windsor Spitfires last year in the OHL final. So I guess he avenges his only three losses by sweeping them aside this year. I don't know, but he proved himself to be very much a championship caliber goaltender in that first round. Yeah, and really, Mike, what you're talking about is the, the exact recipe you need if you're going to succeed in the playoffs, especially beating a, a one seed where every player in that lineup working at their peak capacity and then the few times you give up a look, your goaltender's right there. And and Marco Costantini was was terrific in that series. Probably could have been a star in every game. Uh, and that's the back the backstop you need if you're going to try and upset a team like Windsor. So point being that for all the the down uh, comments and, and talk around Windsor, I, I, I think it's more a case if you just really have to be impressed with just how well Kitchener played in that series up and down that lineup. The only thing that I hope now, and I know this is an, you know, a tried and true complaint slash argument, but both London and Kitchener swept their way through the first rounds. I hope we get to see the caliber of hockey that you would expect between these two teams after a week long layoff, nothing you can do about it, but it was just so much fun to watch. And, and London of course was its usual self in sweeping aside own sound as expected, but I hope we get that, uh, that caliber of hockey. And, and to that point, I wonder, Dan, how much, if at all, this reframes how Rangers fans see the season? Or are they still cautiously waiting for the results of round number two? Because I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. But if the season for the Kitchener Rangers went as expected and they finished somewhere in the top four and had home ice to open the first round... And you would have expected them to win. And then they did win, like they won this round. And now they're into round two. They were going to face a team like London or Sarnia or perhaps Windsor if it was still around. So basically what I'm saying in a roundabout way is that the Kitchener Rangers now have arrived exactly where you thought they would be. I know for fans and the way expectations were built up, the ultimate goal would 
probably still be a, a, a conference championship, if not an OHL championship, maybe even an OHL championship appearance. But right now, they are exactly on the season's trajectory. Yeah, and you know, you, you referenced the fans, Mike. I think speaking as one, I can say that the excitement sure came back in that round. And I think that's all fans ever asked for is the effort, the intensity, and that's what they got. And I think it was so frustrating not seeing it through the year. And the one thing I will say this does do, Mike, is you talk about, does it bring the fans back around? I think more than anything else, it vindicates Mike McKenzie. I think when he made those trades early in the year and made some moves, there was an awful lot of chatter around the league and around the fan base. I had probably a million fans ask me, why is he loading up? They're they're barely a playoff team right now. And and I think you and I were, were amongst the few that kind of said, well, I, I get it. His team is built this year in terms of the age composition, in terms of what they should be getting out of this group. I could understand it, uh, but it was starting to look bleak. It was starting to look like oh, maybe he didn't err here. Maybe he didn't uh, calculate properly. But if anything... Regardless of what happens going forward, Mike, I think player or whoever watched that series says, yeah, the team is in there. The team is the, he assembled the pieces that are quite capable of doing what he expected them to do. Um, now it's just a case of, can they do it for a longer term? Credit to the fan whose name I forget off the top of my head, but who tweeted me back my own tweet after the Windsor series. And he was asking that very question, Dan, at the trade deadline, why is an eighth place team loading up? And I pointed out at the time, you know, the injuries that had been there, the lineup not being full, it's not an eighth place team on paper, et cetera. And he, you know, said, I was down in the dumps as a fan. Uh, you, you said what you said in January that it proved to be right. Look, I, I don't take joy. It's not like I have a crystal ball. That's just the way I was being honest with the way I felt throughout this season. Uh, On that point, by the way, that man over there, his name is Dan Mahar. That's exactly where you'll find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. I'm Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. We're happy to interact. Good, bad or otherwise have at us and let's have some fun out there on social media. Now that the first round is done, Dan, aside from, what obviously was the biggest story in Kitchener's historic upset of Windsor. Any other series or themes jump out to you through the first round of the playoffs? Well, I think, Mike, we pretty much had the predictions right in terms of who who ended up winning the series. You you more than me, you called the Kitchener one. Uh, I think the other storyline that I, I was interested in that first round was seeing Peterborough sweep Sudbury. And I think there's some similarities there to the Kitchener case where Peterborough was kind of built for the playoffs. They were kind of making a run. They loaded up. Things weren't ter- going terribly well. And some people were starting to question, you know, what's wrong with this Peterborough team? Are they going to go out quickly? A lot of predictions I saw for the first round had the Sudbury Wolves upsetting them. I think I had Peterborough winning, but in seven, I thought it was going to be a dogfight. Not that Sudbury got blown out. I mean, the scores were were closer than the series score. Having said that, I think we saw the Peterborough Pete starting to figure out playoff time too. And that was the one thing on my mind, Mike, was the uh the Peterborough defense. They they can punish you. They the the forwards can really shut you down through the neutral zone. It looked to me like a team that was kind of built for the playoffs. And their round one, too, was a, a bit of intrigue for me because they they completely flipped the script from what they were doing late in the year as well. Yeah, you had them in seven. I had them in six over Sudbury. And for me, it was as much about the enigma that was the Peterborough Peets as how well the Sudbury Wolves were playing down the stretch. I I think, you know, when you look back on this one historically, you'll think or wish that the Sudbury Wolves had gotten more out of it in terms of picking up a win. But that's full marks to the Peterborough Peets team that absolutely, much like the Kitchener Rangers, seems to have figured it out just at the right time. So fans up in the lift lock city can look forward to what comes next. And of course, it all it just gets harder from here. A couple of the other things that stood out to me, um, things by things, I mean teams, but Mississauga put more of a scare into North Bay than I thought they would. You had the battalion in four. I had them in five. And then uh, on the other side, uh, Guelph and Sarnia. I did pick Sarnia in six mainly because I thought the Storm had played some of the bigger teams really well throughout the season. And that, with the exception of, I think two of the games got a little lopsided. But either way, even in game six, it goes to overtime for Sarnia to finally seal it. And 
you know, you had the sting in five in that one, but the Guelph storm and, and the Mississauga steel had two teams for me that may, may have overachieved uh, a little bit and definitely show that that's the kind of thing you look at a season from now and say, okay, this is, this is a good thing for where the franchise is at in its cycle. Yeah. And, and for sure. And on that, uh, the first on the Sarnia Guelph series, Mike, I think we were both, yeah, you, you nailed it in six. I had it in five, probably didn't give Guelph enough credit because trend lines for them were good late in the season. They were not going to go quietly, but it shows in that series, it shows how things can change with subtle circumstance differences in a series. And, you know, Sarnia went lost, Dillingham, Richie on D, and suddenly they're a little bit vulnerable there again, uh, getting scored on. Um, so some weaknesses pop up when you lose a key body or two, and that kind of that kind of made things more difficult for them. Uh, so so we saw some cracks in Sarnia as that series went on. On the other side, Mike, the, the Mississauga series, I, I instantly felt bad calling a sweep after I called that one because, I mean, Mississauga proved down the stretch they did not deserve to be uh, have predictions like that. They were in every game. They were battling in every game. They got an awful lot out of out of their senior players with James Hardy. Uh, one of my prospects a week from early, Angus McDonnell, had a heck of a series. You just had a, a, a lot of character there, Mike, much like the Hamilton Bulldogs. So, so yeah, I'm, I, I did regret calling that one in a sweep, but I think there was just too much firepower there in North Bay. But you're right, it bodes well for the future. You mentioned the Hamilton Bulldogs. I picked Barry in seven. You picked Barry in six. So you nailed it team and number but am i allowed to just say flat out that i feel really bad for the hamilton bulldogs not only did they lead game six three nothing but then nick lardis ties it late at four four only to watch ethan cardwell complete the hat trick with 9.2 seconds remaining and the barry colts go on to the second round with a 5-4 win and a 4-2 series win. 5-4 in game six, 4-2, they take the series. But that Hamilton team, much like you just talked about with Mississauga and Guelph, but the trend lines from the time of the trade deadline and the acquisitions that were made, that team was playing really well. They were getting what I would call maximum production out of the players that they acquired. Sahil Panwar was terrific for them. I could go on and on. I just feel bad for Hamilton the way it ended. Their final game in first Ontario center, at least for now, for the next three years, goes down with a real, real heartbreaking defeat. Yeah. And even harder watching Ethan Cardwell tell the fan, giving the fans the shush after he scores the goal. Cause that's going to be the last time they had time to make noise in that arena for a while. But yeah, it's, it, it, you know, scrappy and it, it, it shows the differences between a veteran team with a lot of skill and a younger team that's rebuilding. Hamilton had two glorious looks uh, to, to get the go-ahead goal in the final minute there, including one semi-open net, just didn't convert. Then you come down the other way, a young team makes a mistake. Two players cover the same, cover the puck carrier coming through the, the middle, slides over to the wing, and you got a player like Ethan Cardwell, already two goals in the game, confirmed shoot and find a pinhole in the net which he did nine seconds to go it's just heartbreaking but that's the difference when you have that that veteran elite talent sometimes you don't have to outplay the opposition but you can find those openings where at the other end they had them just just didn't find them but uh, Hamilton's time is probably coming based on what they showed I believed in game seven that the Firebirds firepower was going to be my demise for a perfect first round again I said it would go seven and I gave the slight edge to Saginaw just ever, you know, ever since they kind of got over, if you will, the trade of Pavel Minchikov. That was the biggest blip in their season uh, in and around the trade deadline. They hit the skids, but they kind of figured it out. They've got good goaltending. They got a lot of young talent so, and they had home ice advantage, which was really the reasons I kind of gave them the edge. But Amadeus Lombardi made me feel a little foolish as that game wore on. Saginaw gets a lead. Flint battles back. Ultimately, Saginaw wins it 6-3, which looks worse on paper than it was actually on the ice. But I don't think that the league could have asked for any more than it got out of that I-75 series. Oh, it was everything it was billed to be, Mike. And, and let's face it, we both called seven games. You had Saginaw, I had Flint. It was a coin flip either way, and it turned out exactly that way. The winning goal coming with just about three minutes left in that game. I, I think both teams were a little bit vulnerable defensively, perhaps. They, they, they weren't the... 
the biggest shutdown defense cores you'll find in the league. Uh, I would say Flint did definitely had the firepower advantage to some degree and Saginaw probably had a little bit of a goaltending advantage with Tristan Lennox back there. So it was a complete coin toss came down to the very end as you knew it would. And I think this is what I love about playoff hockey, Mike, where you see the, the winning goal in that series, just the slightest little mistakes. And you talk about gap control and being on top of your man, the whole series, the Flint Firebirds just had a momentary lapse where the winger was 10, 12 feet from the point man and he fed it down the wall to the forward and his man was five, six feet off him. That's all it took to get the shot off. Sapovalov in front of the net with a tip. So it's at the margin of error is so small in this level of hockey, Mike. And when it comes to playoffs, you give an inch, they sometimes the team will take a mile. And that's what we saw. Well, and just before we started recording this episode, what did you say to me? We saw junior hockey in a nutshell in the two games that just wrapped up Saginaw beating Flint and Barry beating Hamilton before we started this episode of the OHL podcast. And that's really in a nutshell, the reason we love the game at this level so much, because these sorts of things happen all the time. You know, we we talk, we go back to that regular season game that we saw in Kitchener where the Rangers were up 5-2 with under three minutes to go and they lose the game in overtime because junior hockey and the smallest mistake can end up in the back of your net in a hurry. And those mistakes happen more commonly at this level. And I'm perfectly okay with that. Absolutely. It's, it, it, the intrigue is just unbelievable in this league, Mike. And you look and even if you only look on paper, sometimes things are deceiving. But I mean, we look pretty much all of the teams acquitted themselves quite well in this playoffs. You look at a team that was fairly overmatched, like the Oshawa Generals, even that was was a good series. They put up a good fight. They 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 got a win as I, I expected they would. But the other games, they battled right to tooth and nail to the end, had Fords playing D. I, I think the losing teams from this first round of playoffs are going to have an awful lot they can take going forward. Real quick, before we move into talking about suspensions, which several were handed out in the first round, you said something earlier that caught my attention when you mentioned our success rate or making predictions in the playoffs. And, you know, you had a very respectable 750 percentage in round one. I got lucky hitting eight for eight, but I wonder. It's not, if we're being honest, it's not that difficult to do, particularly in the Ontario Hockey League, right? You know who the the teams are that loaded up. You kind of end up with your haves and have nots from the trade deadline down. Is that a good thing for the league? No, and I, but I'm not sure it's fixable either, though, Mike, because you, you, we all know it's cyclical. So you're going to have teams that ship a bunch of players out due to graduation every year, and they're going to have a real tough time being a legitimate contender the next year and so i'm not sure you get around that because you're you're right that's why it's the first time we ever saw an eight seed sweep a, a one seed only the fifth time they actually have ever beaten them just because there's usually a huge gulf there but i i think we should be encouraged by just how well some of those lower seeds did this year there were there wasn't any series that was a cakewalk probably the closest one was was london over owen sound and owen sound was a bit banged up there but uh there were those were eight series with some really good hockey yeah, you know what? That's a really good point. When you consider Mississauga and Guelph, whom we've already talked about, Hamilton, who was terrific as a sixth seed. So those some of those lower seeds really did show up. And it, it does bode well, I think, because I do worry about it a little bit. Not that I think there's a fix, certainly not an easy one, but I don't think you want things to be too predictable, especially if you want to get a couple of uh, revenue gates from playoff games. So anyway, we'll we'll leave that there and move on to... Uh, the suspensions that were handed out. So we had a couple of guys serving uh, both Windsor Spitfires, ironically, uh, serving two-game bans for putting pucks into the crowd. We had Sahil Panwar, uh, two games for a head check. Nolan Dillingham gets four games for a check to the head. Francesco Pinelli of the Kitchener Rangers, three games for a blindside check to the head. And then kind of the outlier in all of this, Brant Clark, one game for a knee on knee with Lawson Shirk. I've got some thoughts on this. I think we've both weighed into conversations online about it, but where are you at with how the OHL has doled out the discipline in these playoffs? Well, I'll be fairly blunt. I, I, I don't love it. I, I don't really see the rhyme or reason or consistency there. 
if if I give them a little bit of credit, I, I did think the Dillingham one was the worst of the bunch, probably, and it was the most the, the lengthiest. I probably had the Brant Clark one as the second worst, and it was one game uh, versus some of the others. Uh, I thought both Riley Piercy and Colby Barlow had hits that were probably suspension worthy and nothing there. Uh, so it's a bit of a guessing game. And, and of course we saw firsthand the Francesco Pinelli one where I uh, looked at that replay a lot of times, saw it live. Uh, I, I thought it was a pretty mitigating factor that the player hopped over the boards right in front of him. Might've leaned his shoulder in a bit, maybe a bit of a sneak hit there. I'm not sure, but uh, three sure seemed harsh Four really, if you count the fact it was on the first shift of the game. So uh, I'm not really sure where the consistency is and that they're taking all of the factors into account they should be taking into account because if it's just we don't want anything near the head, okay, well, then there should have been a couple more suspensions. Or is it just dangerous hits that could really uh, injure a person? Well, then Brant Clark probably should have been sitting more than he did. So I, I'm guessing, Mike, it's it, and it, sh- it shouldn't really be a guessing game because you want clear criteria and clear uh, established uh case for for making these calls i'm not seeing it so i'm not sure if you're seeing the same thing but i'm struggling to guess yeah i'm feeling similarly about this and i think there were some other plays frasca i think got away with one in game five versus hamilton uh when you talk about you know a player in a vulnerable position with a check from behind etc uh listen hunter mckenzie who was the player injured by Nolan Dillingham did not return. So Dillingham with the stiffness of the four games, it just makes me wonder how much of that factored in Oliver Peer uh, did not see the ice again after being hit by Francesco Pinelli in, in the Kitchener Windsor series. The one that stands out to me the most is the Brant Clark one. And look, I'll, I'll just be honest. Brant's father got in. I shouldn't say got into it, but responded online uh, about, some of what I was saying about it. I'm not trying to pick on the kid. I've got nothing against Brant Clark. I I don't know him personally. I'm not trying to say he's a bad guy or a bad hockey player. I've pumped his tires enough as a hockey player to, I think, be clear about that part of it. But what, what concerns me is that we now have a situation, at least in my eyes, where a knee-on-knee collision or a knee-on-knee hit, the bar for it is one game. That, that's the bar. So the next time you suspend somebody for more than one game for a knee-on-knee hit, you're breaking with the precedent, if you will, that you set in these playoffs. And then the question would be, well, why are you breaking with that precedent? Did Brant Clark get special treatment because he's Brant Clark? Or, and what I think was a mitigating factor here, is that Lawson Shirk finished the game, came back, said it was just a Charlie horse, got off lucky. All good. But we we have to be punishing the action, not the result of the action. We have to put the deterrent into people's minds that sticking my leg out as I'm crossing east-west on the ice is not an acceptable play because it's a very dangerous play. Heck, I've always wondered about it, frankly, from both players' perspectives. I think you run the risk of serious injury to yourself in something like that, which makes me think it's probably not intentional all that often anyway i just i don't like where the bar is now for a knee on knee hit nor do i mike and and yeah like you you prefaced it with all the things i would say too like brent clark's not a dirty player and i don't think he intended to injure the player there i think he was stepping up with speed through the neutral zone but what i what i didn't love about it was that he had a clear line of sight to the player and had some time to make a different decision Whereas that's not always the case in some of these hits. Uh, I, I mean, not not to to be the homer here with the kitchen, but I, did, I don't believe Francesco Pinelli was afforded that luxury of having time to make a decision there. I think it split second right in front of him. And, and so I, I'm not sure how they're evaluating these hits, but you're absolutely right, Mike, because headshots, we no one likes them. I uh, saw Oliver Pierre in that uh, final game of the series. Great to see he's doing fine. So that's good to see. You don't want to see anyone's head get hurt. Having said that, the knee is is a close second where you get those blown up at a, at this stage of your career. And some players never really get back to full health. So knees and the second thing I'd be protecting as best you can. And, and the whole point being, I'm not saying they should have thrown the book at, at Brant Clark. I just love to see some consistency here around the intent of the act, the potential outcomes of the act lining up with the severity of the punishment 
And, and the far and away, the thing I liked the least about the Brand Clark hit was just the time he had to make that decision or to make a different decision. And he kind of got lucky, like you said, that Lawson Shirk wasn't more seriously injured. But uh, I'm just not sure how they're evaluating these. So I'll play devil's advocate here for a moment on what you just talked about with the Francesco Pinelli hit specifically. And I'll say in the context of what I just said about Brant Clark, that the suspension then to Francesco Pinelli, the captain of the Kitchener Rangers, is a good one insofar as it should then make the player hopefully think about in a situation like that where there's a split second reaction required, my split second reaction shouldn't be to invite contact. It should be to avoid it. So if Francesco Pinelli, and I know we can get into a whole thing about, well, what if you hurt yourself trying to avoid it? Let's just put that aside for a moment. But if that's the case, then three, because three games is, is pretty severe, right? So let's not make our initial reaction in a play that happened the way the Oliver Pierre Francesco Pinelli play happened. Let's not make contact our the first thing on our mind. Let's make it a, enough of a deterrent to make us think about avoiding contact at all costs. It was put this way by a guy who's observed this game for even longer than I have uh, after the whole Brant Clark thing and the Nolan Dillingham and all of these other suspensions came down. He likened it to running a red light. And if you, if you run a red light, it's a, it's a moving violation. It's a traffic violation. I, I think there might be some points attached to it, which is make it makes it a stiffer deterrent. But don't quote me on that. I'm not a police officer and I don't know the Highway Traffic Act. But the point is, and, and I, it was an interesting point that he made. If you run the red light, your penalty is this. If you run the red light and you hit another vehicle or a person, heaven forbid, or anything like that, and and they are injured, the penalty is more severe. And heaven forbid that they die and the penalty gets more severe still. So I I kind of see that as a defense of punishing the outcome as opposed to the act. However, I think the act of running that red light in the first place is the reckless behavior that we want to try to curtail so that the other results never have a chance of even happening. So I would still come back to, I don't like where the bar is at for neon knees. Uh, no, I, I agree with you hundred percent, Mike. And I think, I think the part that irks me the most about it is, is most of these incidents in isolation, you would look at them and say, yeah, okay, I can see there, there was a, an act here that needs to be punished but it's all the other acts with the same intent or worse intent that just got off lucky they went undetected or a player wasn't hurt and i'm not going to name any names because there was another hit in the kitchener windsor series i don't want to throw anyone under the bus i just to make a point though there was a, a, a an almost identical play to the francesco Pinelli one but even worse where the player had more time to make the decision had a better look at it leaned in and clipped a player's head who from the blind side Almost identical, but but even more egregious, not even a two-minute minor. Of course, the player wasn't hurt. He got off lucky. Um, so again, the the uh, outcome was the thing maybe they were looking at, or maybe they just didn't see it. But if, if the idea is to get the these acts out of there, the intent of these acts, then you could go up and down game film and probably find three or four more in each game and really lay down the law. But it just seems like it going by the outcome, you're rolling a dice. That is an excellent example to bring up and it makes for an unintentional segue because i just wanted to share briefly this got me thinking about playoffs past and you know i've i've been around long enough to remember times when penalties were a lot stiffer and i think it does show that we've maybe slipped a little bit when it comes to our willingness to really drop the hammer and i'll take you back to the 2012 playoffs round one Kitchener and Owen Sound. Mike Halmo of the Owen Sound attack gets a 10-game suspension. And Tyler Randall of the Kitchener Rangers also gets a 10-game suspension. The interesting thing about the Randall suspension, and it's one of my favorite suspension, playoff suspension stories ever. So the Randall one, much like you just described the hit on Matt Sopp in the Windsor-Kitchener series, where Randall wasn't even penalized on the play for his hit on Arturs Gavris of the Owen Sound attack. But he did get, after the tape was sent in, a 10-game suspension. It happened in game one. The Rangers finished that series versus Owen Sound in five games. So they played four more after that first game, which meant Tyler Randall, in his overage year, looking ahead at hopefully cracking the Boston Bruins lineup, needed to see 
the second round go at least seven games or he was not going to see the ice again. And it was Rangers Plymouth. And wouldn't you know, it got to a seventh game. So he serves six more games of his suspension to start the second round, comes back in game seven, scores four times, and the Rangers win the series in seven and go on to play the London Knights in the Western Conference Final. I just think that's a, a fun story. And two 10-game suspensions in the same playoff series. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll go on record right now too, Mike, that I don't like seeing the 10-gamers. I, I, I think that we have to remember these are kids too, and it would have to be a seriously egregious act to give a junior hockey player a 10 gamer. Like, you know, we're talking the Jeff Kugel type type incidents that, because they, they say there's a, a, an exchange rate on playoff games, roughly two to one. So 10 playoff games is about a 20 gamer in the regular season. And, you know, you're never going to see that in the NHL because the CBA protects players against it. And there's a reason for like lost income, uh, all that stuff that they worry about. But for junior hockey players, I'd say the stakes are as high or higher because, like you said, they're all trying to find contracts for the next year and find a pro path. And so not only does the making them sit out lengthy suspensions limit their ability to be seen by scouts, but it also tarnishes the reputation. So I, I think you're right about the slip uh, slip on how severely we're punishing some things, but I'm not sure that we want to go back to where it was overpunished either. I think I'm just we're just looking for some sort of balance and consistency. Our final prospects of the week for this season before we evolve to a player of the week as there are fewer games to look at. Plus, round two predictions, because who doesn't want to make more predictions right after we got lucky in round number one? That's all still coming on this episode of the OHL Podcast. start dan in the eastern conference as we take a look at round number two the ottawa 67s uh got through in five games over the oshawa generals and for that they are going to meet the peterborough peets who are yet to taste defeat in these playoffs the enigma that is the peets have a very tall order in round number two who you got yeah well we the the titans made it through in the east right this was the the battles we were expecting to see so I was on record after the trade deadline saying I really like the Peets, how they shaped up as a playoff team. And the Ottawa 67s maybe arrived early this year. Having said that, I just think that team is a beast. Uh, and I'm not sure the Peterborough Peets have enough firepower and potentially enough speed to deal with Ottawa over seven games. I think it's going to be a doozy of a series, a great series. Michael Simpson's terrific in net for Peterborough. We know there's going to be a game within a game there with some of the matchups on the faceoffs, but to make a long story short, I've got Ottawa in six there. Who have you got? So I'm I'm struggling with this one for the very same reasons that you are. Did Ottawa arrive a little bit early? And look at the way that the Peets seemed to have kind of figured it out, uh, especially the way they handled Sudbury. I know. It's not as though they're playing a, you know, a giant in the Eastern Conference, but there's so much on the line for the Peterborough Peets. There is so much on the line considering what they've done to build this team and all of the ramifications of that. So does that mean there's more pressure on them? Maybe, but there is offense to burn. I love the goaltending. They've got a little bit of nastiness on the back end. I'm going to take the Peets in seven in this one just to mix things up a little bit. And, you know, partly because Ottawa doesn't even have a home right now. So I know they'll be settled out for a second round, but I'm going to I'm going to go off the board on that one and say the Enigma continues to keep it figured out in the playoffs. All right. North Bay and Barry. I don't know how many series get better than the looks of this one, baby. <laughs> yeah, this one's this one's going to be terrific, too. And. I think you've got two fantastic veteran teams. Barry really coming on at the end. And I, I got to give a shout out to Declan uh, McDonald for how he played in round one, really salvaged a season that he probably wasn't thrilled with uh, for checking uh, Tasmanian devil. That So there's, there's a lot of trouble that I think Barry's going to give North Bay. I just love up and down that North Bay lineup, what they can bring to the table. Uh, they got, 
three lines that can hurt you, arguably four. We saw Anthony Romani had a terrific round one. So you see those players stepping up when when the top guys are being shut down. I just like everything about North Bay, including their their goaltending is just off the charts. So I've got to go North Bay and six in this one too. How about you, Mike? So let me ask you before I give my answer. Does the battalion dropping two games to Mississauga give you any pause at all? Not really, only because I will go back to saying how embarrassed I was to call Mississauga to win no games. I thought I thought Mississauga was was terrific down the stretch, so I think that's full credit to them. I don't think it takes away anything from North Bay and how powerful they are. Yeah, I think um, it's one of those things that you might want to read a little bit more into. And other times I think those are just the kinds of little teeny weeny reminders, not even scares, but reminders that good teams need that, hey, they do have weaknesses that can be exposed or if they're not giving that full effort, they're not going to get the results for it. I I like the way North Bay is built top to bottom as well. But boy, like Hamilton gave Barry everything and Barry still came out on top in six games and did so in dramatic fashion. I'm going to stick with the battalion because they've been kind of my darlings of the East since early in the season. I'll take North Bay in seven in that one. So I got both series in the East going seven. That'll never happen, just for the record. <laughs> Let's shift over to uh, the West and uh, the London Knights, who made short order of the Owen South attack in a sweep, get the team that historically swept the top seed away. So London gets the uh, the easy mark, right? They get the eight seed Kitchener Rangers, who, of course, we all know, and I love the subplots. Jeff Merrick likes to say, I don't care as much about the game as I care about the story. Well, Mr. Merrick, this one has got storylines written all over it. Last year, the Rangers were a seven seed. They knocked off the number two London Knights in round number one. This time it's two versus eight, but it's in round number two. Who you got, Dansky? This one was tough, Mike, because like you said, the storylines, uh, There's, I think I have every reason to pick London. They're the two seed. They desperately want revenge after last year. They're healthy. They're the flip of what Windsor was. Very strong defensively. Very outstanding goaltending. It's going to be a different look for Kitcher to contend with. And Kitcher missing their best player and captain for games one and two. Every reason to pick London, right? Well, I'm going to go with Kitchener in seven. And the reason being is I've been hard on Kitchener all year. But what I just witnessed in round one, if they manage to bottle that and come out with that again... I'm not sure there's a team that, that can take them down right now, Mike. So so to go against Kitchener right now, I would have to be banking on them slipping from the round one performance. And I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're gonna they're gonna maintain it. And I'm taking them in seven. Who you got? You know, it, this is going to be like we're gonna be chum in the water for anybody west of Waterloo region. In the London area, probably Woodstock is starting to hate us already. Like I can see the emails coming in to OHL podcast at rogers.com. I had the Rangers in seven in round number one. I'm not sure anybody else was was picking the Rangers to win. They definitely got it together. And look, I could have made the argument. I, I think I might have about, you know, the top end talent for Windsor was better. But once you start getting below it, the Rangers might have had more offensive firepower. I, I look at London Kitchener. I look at a pretty even matchup in goal, maybe give the edge to the the guy who's won an OHL championship, because in case you didn't know, Brett Brochu just won his first OHL playoff series. He beating Owen Sound was the first OHL playoff series Brochu won, but not a lot to give in goal. The defense on both of these teams is is bordering on spectacular, probably one of their strongest points. Uh, maybe giving the edge there to the London Knights with mobility and some big shots from the back end, maybe. But then offensively, you know, Evangelista and Strongest and company are not there for London anymore. I know they've got some some guys and they went out and acquired, you know, the Diacos and the Wintertons and the Humphreys to go along with Sean McGurn, etc. But it's it's hard not to like Kitchener after what they did in round number one. So like you, here's my third seven game prediction in round number two. I'm going Rangers in seven. So that leaves just one series left. And it's going to be the Sarnia Sting versus the Saginaw Spirit. Well, Mike, I'm going to stick to my guns in that I had called Sarnia Sting to come out of the mm -hmm. West. And I just think too highly of what they've got on paper. 
And I do think they learned something from round one against those pesky Guelph Storm and that you have to keep your foot on the pedal. There was a, uh, they were overpassing in that series. They sometimes weren't always moving their legs, trying to rely on just the talent to get them there. So I'm, I'm going to assume that they learned their lesson in round one and are going to be ready, just maybe have a little bit too much weaponry for those Saginaw spirit. But I, Mike, I, you know me, I hate going against Chris Lazary and I hate going against the Saginaw spirit and everything they've done. Uh, what a phenomenal year they've had. It's impossible for it to be a negative at this point, but uh, based on what I'm seeing on paper from Sarnia and what I saw down the stretch, I've got Sarnia in six. How about you? So, I think we're going to, we're going to agree across the board on this. And listen, one thing you know that the spirit are going to do is work their tails off. It's going to be it's going to be tough to win in Saginaw when the games go there. They're going to give you fits on the road. They've got very strong goaltending, decent defense, but I think the Sarnia's thing is one of those teams because of the way they're built and everybody knows what the ultimate goal is there one of those teams that's just going to get better as the playoffs go on. And they, they were battle tested the way they had to win some of those games in, in round number one, a couple of them in overtime. I I think with no disrespect intended to the Saginaw spirit, Sarnia is actually going to make it through a little quicker. I've got them in five in this one over Saginaw, but I, I think the, the best news in all of this is we are in store for some of the best hockey that the Ontario hockey league has provided all season long as these, uh, semifinals get underway yeah yeah and if you if you want storylines or players to watch out for for anyone that's interested in following these other series is my guy i'm going to send you towards is hunter hate and saginaw under the radar player uh get a look at this guy terrific wheels terrific motor terrific worth that work ethic if you haven't heard of this player looked like a playoff player to me through that whole series so so get a look at him if you can should be a lot of fun in round number two. Okay, the only piece of business we've got left before we wrap up this episode of the OHL podcast is our final prospect of the week because we still had 16 teams playing. So we'll shorten this to just our player of the week moving forward for the playoffs. But who do you have as your uh, final prospect that stood out to you ahead of this June's, of course, NHL draft? Okay, Mike, I'm crossing my fingers. I didn't, I don't think I stole your guy. Okay. But I got to be careful here because I just based on what I saw in round one, I've got to I got to have my Homer episode here. And I've I've got to go with Matthew Andonovsky as my prospect of the week. And the reason being is he came into this league, uh, made it as a 16-year-old, reputation of being a tough kid, maybe not the most mobile feet, maybe not the highest skill level with the puck, but a competitor. The progression I've seen in his skill game and his skating game, mobility east, west, and north, south, moving the puck, uh, looks like a real player. He doesn't look like a 17-year-old player out there. Could was paired with Hunter Brustevich towards the end of that series, paired up against just about anyone. He was he was on Matthew Maggio a lot of the time. Uh, I, I just really, really love how his game has progressed this year, Mike. He looks like he's just going to be a beast as a 19-year-old in this league. So so my final prospect for the season, based on everything I saw in round one, is Matthew Andonovsky. I thought, I thought you were going to steal at least one of my – last week I stayed away from Luca Pinelli because I kind of felt like where else are you going to go, right? And so – you took Luca and and I went with Carson Rakoff. I wanted to pump Rakoff's tires again one more time. Are we showing that we're wearing some blue and red shades this week? Maybe <laughs> just a little bit, maybe just a little bit. But listen, we, we talked already about the Rangers and the upset and to a man, how you could just praise individual efforts. I, I think I saw that from Carson Rakoff in every one of the games in round number one, just the, the willingness to play both ends of the ice and then the, much more stick to on offense. So I wanted to give Carson an honorable mention and basically say, look how smart I was when I mentioned him last week. And I'm going to also throw in there, but not that I'm bringing him up necessarily, but the number of people talking to me on Thursday about Mitch Martin and by people, I mean, you, you would have seen the arena, Dan, it was crazy. The, the scouts didn't even have really a place to hang out because the building was so full, but the scouts that were there to watch players Many were just talking about Mitch Martin and how much they've appreciated him in the playoffs so far. So I'll just put that out there from the scouts who are paid to watch this stuff. But my prospect of the week, I'm going back to the well. I know I've done this a lot, but 
listen, if Luca Pinelli is an easy pick and was named the OHL's co-performer of the week, along with Francesco Pinelli, because he had 12 points in five games in the first round, how do you not pick a guy like Nick Lardis, who had 10 points in six games? He had at least a point in every single playoff game. And this is a guy that came over to the Hamilton Bulldogs midseason at the trade deadline. He had 19 points in 36 games as a Pete. He had 46 points in 33 games as a Hamilton Bulldog. That's what you get when opportunity is provided to you and you take advantage of it. I think Nick Lardis took advantage of it in spades. I loved him in the regular season. I think this is the third time I've made him my prospect of the week, but I don't know how you ignore numbers like that from an underdog team where he's going to go out there and get you a point, at least one point every night, 10 points in six games. Nick Lardis is my boy and he's my prospect of the week. <laughs> well, Mike, those are, those are elite numbers for a 19 or 20 year old. So as a 17 year old, you have to hand it to him. And, and I was fairly confident you were going to take Nick Lardis. So I'm glad you did because one of the two of us had to, he he's just been that good. So absolutely great choice. All right. Uh, as we wrap up another episode of our, league talk uh looking ahead to friday with our feature interview on the ohl podcast i've i've really been looking forward to this one it kind of sort of sort of kind of fell into my lap i think he wanted to come on the podcast or at least people around him wanted him on the podcast so i've known this guy for as long as i was in the league i've been in the league because when i started in the league he was an assistant in belleville with a guy by the name of George Burnett. And he's kind of followed George Burnett around the Ontario Hockey League for a little bit. Currently, though, working in U Sports. That's probably all you need to know about this guy. Uh, real success uh, with Hockey Canada and the U-17s where he's won three golds and a silver. But boy, oh boy, some of the stories he's got to share, including what it was like playing for Larry Mavity. I'll tell you, I think you're going to enjoy it. So that is our guest on the uh, OHL podcast feature interview coming up on Friday. You know who we're talking about already. Oh, it's they've all been good, Mike, but this is going to be great. <laughs> all right. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. Find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Shoot us an email anytime. Hey, you want to share your predictions? Feel free. OHL podcast at Rogers.com. Like, subscribe, tell a friend. We appreciate you, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.